And we are super psyched to welcome our newest sponsor, Thunder Road Guitars. Thunder Road Guitars is the Pacific Northwest best source for premium, new, used, and vintage guitars, amplifiers, and pedals. Online or in their Seattle, that's West Seattle, or Portland stores. You'll find fantastic customer service and a terrific vibe. I know because I'm in there a lot. Grab a cup of coffee, swing on in, don't spill your coffee, and check it all out. And now if you use code TOURSTORIES10, you can get 10% off at thunderroadguitars.com. Yes, that's me playing guitar. Hello, big news from our friends over at DistroKid. They now have an app. This app works on iOS and Android, of course, and it's available in the Apple Store and Google Play Stores and all the stores where you buy apps. Go check it out. It's got a lot of cool features. You can upload new releases. You can get notified when you've earned royalties. Awesome. You can withdraw from the app via push notifications. A little dangerous for me, but rad. Anyways, go check it out. It's all at distrokid.com app. And don't forget, you can still get 30% off your DistroKid account by going to distrokid.com VIP slash tour stories. Have a great one. We continue to celebrate our friends and partners over at Isotope, and we got some big news for you. The gold standard of audio repair, RX11, is coming in May. In the meantime, you can buy RX10 now on sale and get RX11 absolutely free when it's released. Tour Story listeners get 10% off by using code FRET10. That's F-R-E-T-1-0. All at isotope.com. That's I-Z-O-T-O-P-E dot com. Hello, Tour Story listeners. Thank you for your continued support, and welcome to Season 4. I'd like to take a second to thank our friends and sponsors over at Isotope. Here at Ruinous, Chris and I rely heavily on easy-to-use tools like RX and Ozone for all of our audio repair, mixing, and mastering. Now, Tour Story listeners can get 10% off Isotope plugins or try Music Production Suite Pro for free for 30 days using code FRET10. That's F-R-E-T-1-0. To get your discount and check out all of their easy-to-use products, go to isotope.com slash ruinous. That's I-Z-O-T-O-P-E dot com slash ruinous. And use code FRET10. And thank you for listening. Hi, Nabil. Hey, how's it going? Good, how are you doing? I'm great. Happy to be here. I haven't seen you since our friend got married, I don't think. I know, right? that's funny. I was trying to think about the last time I saw you, and that, I mean, that was way pre-pandemic. That was years ago. Yeah, and someone sent me a picture of me, you, and Taylor, which was sad and nice. Yep, that's, I, I was thinking about that picture as well. Yeah. So where are you right now? I'm in New York. I'm at home in, uh, in Brooklyn, Clinton Hill, exactly. Clinton Hill. Yeah. I made demos for the Mr. Heavenly record in Clinton Hill and we almost called the record Clinton Hill. That's amazing. How long ago was that? 10 years ago. Wow. Yeah. We rehearsed in a garage and we were just recently talking about it. And I, we were like, Nick, whose house was that? And he was like, I thought that was Ryan's friend's house. And Ryan was like, I thought that was your house. <laughs> and I didn't know anyone. And we think that maybe we were just in someone's. You, just, you were just squatting like, oh. in, in, a, <laughs> in a garage in Clinton Hill. 
Uh, Maybe it was uh, Jason Sudeikis. He lives here. He's the, he's oh, the yeah. talk of the neighborhood right now. Oh, man, that would have been fun. <laughs> uh, so it, it seems like you've been uh, touring a lot, book touring. Yeah, it, it's it's so funny, you know, as someone who played in bands and toured for years to, to to do sort of a similar thing, but without playing drums and without loading gear and without bandmates. <laughs> yeah, I could imagine how it's different. How is it similar to rock and roll touring where you just like, oh, of course. This yeah, yeah, happen. totally. I mean, there's so many, so many sort of things that, that reminded me of rock touring. I mean, similar in that there's just like you're just subject to the schedule and the location, like no matter what. So what I found, I mean, this is like, you know, whatever, some old person complaining stuff, but you know, <laughs> all these events are like seven, eight ish. And so it all sounded great and it was all really fun. But what I realized is like, well, I can't really like eat right before and then after, oh, yeah. it's like, you know, you sign books and friends come and end up hanging out and everything. And then suddenly it's like 1030 and I'm starving. And so the hardest thing was actually like when to eat and what to yeah. eat. And that reminded me very much of being on tour. I mean, obviously, shows are usually later, but that was always kind of a like, you're just stuck in this place with whatever options and whatever timing you have. And that's still right. that was still the case with this. You're still eating pizza at 1230. Yeah, doing, doing burritos on the street, <laughs> which was fun and reminded me a lot of rock touring. Um, well, let's get to it. You have written a beautiful book that it takes us on your life's journey uh, with the common thread being one of the common threads being you're searching for a connection with uh, your biological father, Roy. Yeah. Ayers. And first, I want to ask you, what what inspired you to write this down and, and decide to share it with people? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I, for some reason, it's actually related to the tour story that I'll tell. But All right. Um, for some reason, about six years ago, just started writing kind of out of nowhere and not not with the goal of publishing it and not even with the goal of anyone reading it. More just, I think I was getting old enough maybe where I thought wow I really have tons of great stories and I tell them and it's fun and I enjoy telling stories and for some reason I just feel like I should make them exist and I'm, I'm doing the typing motion with my hands right now that you yeah, can yeah. see so so that's what writing is to me it's typing so I just started kind of writing stories and it was you know fun stuff about when I lived in Seattle I owned a record store called Sonic Boom that stuff and like touring and bands and like you know just fun things that were easy short stories that we all have lots of and and just like really enjoyed doing it and then when we when we sold Sonic Boom I published a piece in The Stranger in Seattle of kind of about the early years of the store and that was really fun and like really yeah. loved getting feedback from people so I think it just sort of developed into this like this new fun thing this outlet kind of this creative thing especially because it's probably around the time i stopped really playing drums and i think in a weird way it replaced that because i live in new york mm -hmm. and don't have a drum set here so it's kind of this fun creative outlet that i just loved and was doing for myself and my wife was like look this is all really fun you can keep writing about your bands and your record store but really what you should write about is your father and your race because that's what's interesting and that's what people will be interested in and i knew she was right didn't really know what to do and definitely wasn't planning on writing a book, but I was like, I know what I'll do. I'll just write about the few times I've met my father. And the quick backstory is that my mother met him immediately was like, this is the person I want to have a kid with. And in a very short period of time said to him, will you be the father of my child? You do not need to be part of our lives. And he agreed. Yeah. And I've always known that story, but it's, you know, it's an interesting childhood and life I've had as a result. So, so I started writing about just kind of the, 
the weird brief run-ins I'd have with him as a kid in New York or the time that I went to visit him when he was recording at Electric Lady Studios and these different things. And after a while, I kind of just amassed this stack of stories. And that's when I finally realized, like, wow, this actually could be a book. This covers yeah. decades and feelings and connections and music is kind of the through line. And that's when I really started working on it in earnest. But it came really naturally. I never actually planned on writing a book. Right. And and you and Roy have a unique relationship, obviously. Uh, but to sort of describe it is, you know, you know who he is. You, it's not it's not a mystery you also have this experience of knowing him publicly and sort of objectively throughout your life and then to bring it back in subjectively you can reach out to him right and throughout the years he didn't necessarily i, I don't want to speak for you but it didn't seem like you were getting necessarily what you want and a lot of people would have given up for a variety of reasons they might have just said fuck this I, you know that <laughs> right. is, is a waste of time or whatever i need to preserve myself and you did not. And you're so positive in the book. That's one thing. I We know each other a little bit, but man, you are like the most positive person in the world. And you seem to be, I don't know if it's quiet, but you, you it seems to be quietly determined. Is that what kept you going? Is that what kept you pursuing this, this connection? Yeah, I think so. I mean... It is. I'm glad you, you see it as positive. It's definitely meant to be a positive book. I mean, there's yeah, some ups and downs with feelings about my father and, and other sure. things. But but that's what I love about the title. I mean, My Life in the Sunshine is the lyric from his very famous song. But it's also, to me, just this very sort of optimistic, positive title. That's what I really yeah. love about it. But, um, but yeah, I mean, as you say, I mean, for the first 30-something years of my life, I would say it was sort of a non-issue. I always knew that story that my mother said, will you give me a child and not be part of our lives? So there wasn't, it's unique. There wasn't a divorce. He didn't leave us. No one did anything. You know, everyone kept their end of the bargain, basically. And it was never yeah. presented to me as, oh, your deadbeat father. You know, it was nothing like that. It was always mm -hmm. like he did this amazing thing. And the family was me and my mother and my uncle and lots of other people who were around and incredible role models. And I had a really great childhood. So it was never... There's never a moment of negativity that my mother or anyone else kind of expressed about my father. So I kind of inherited that naturally. But what happened is once I was in my mid 30s, he he played, you know, he still tours to this day, but he was playing in Seattle where I lived at the time. And he played there before. But this time, I think I finally just thought like, wow, he's nearing 70. I'm in my mid 30s. If I ever want to know anything, even just like medical history or family information, mm -hmm. I don't have all the time in the world, maybe. And, you know, I'm still... I think I probably wanted more than that, but that was my very easy excuse to reach out to him. So I got a hold of him, and we had this incredible lunch in Seattle. We're both adults at this point. I didn't ask anything of him. I didn't want money or anything else. And we kind of really connected and got along great. And my hope was, cool, moving forward, it'd be great to do this once or twice a year or, you know, just sort of be in touch. And uh, yeah. and once I kind of started to try to drive that, it really fell apart, and he kind of pulled away. And that's the first time well into my adulthood that I finally started to feel like, uh, this is kind of the the bad feeling that people always assume that I've had all my life, but actually never had until that point. So, I mean, the very short version of the long story is without him involved, I just kind of started going around him and discovered all these other people who I think I'm related to some, I think I'm not related yeah. to others. And in the end, it kind of doesn't matter. It's all these, it's very interesting extended family that keeps growing. Yeah. And I do want to, I do want to speak about your mom and your uncle, Alan. Yeah. I mean, talk about rocks. 
and <laughs> and not just solid parenting, but very interesting, culturally rich parenting. Um, no offense, Troy, but it seems like this might be a situation where, you know, those those parents that you were that you wound up with being your uncle and your mom mm-hmm. is probably the best situation. I, right. You know. Yeah. Certainly the amazingly, I think the more musical somehow, which is kind of amazing because yeah. I, I always assume and everyone Crazy. assumes that all my interest in music comes from my father. But, you know, really constant dedicated exposure from my mother and my uncle. Yeah. It's wild. Yeah. Well, uh, tour stories wouldn't be tour stories without a song and later a tour story. But uh, And I want to play uh, one of your uncle's tunes, The Ark of Salvation, off of Valley of Search, which is new to me. So thanks for turning me on to some tunes. Um, but I want to play that tune. Is that cool? That's great. Yeah. All right. I love that song. Let's hear it. <laughs>
man, that's a that's a tune. It's pretty heavy. Yeah, it's so killer. And it's uh, I don't know if I'm influenced by your chapter sequence, but it's got a little Love Supreme in it for me. Yeah, that's for sure. I, yeah, I mean, Alan, you know, that was what 1974 that they recorded that, and that's yeah. I mean, he was a humongous. He was and is a humongous Coltrane fan, and and has yeah. incredible stories about seeing Coltrane at many places, big and small, in New York in the 60s as a teenager, like just amazing stuff. And also, um. To draw an, another line to fatherhood, it 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 does definitely have a. Um, have you do you know that record, science fiction, the Ornette Ornette Coleman record? I don't know that one. Not that I can it's think got of. some themes of fatherhood in it, and, but it, the sound is it's very similar to that. Wow, interesting. Uh, yeah, and to that, I am so envious of you being down on Canal Street at that, <laughs> at that time. I mean, it's pretty magical. I mean, that's like, I and mean, I know a lot of people are very fascinated with sort of that era 70s new york city and, and i yeah, am too sure. and i even i remember it but still it's like magical and so mysterious and weird and cool yeah was everything grainy did everyone wear glasses where it was <laughs> it did, yeah it was all a brit bit yellow and brown <laughs> 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 it really was though my memories look like I, mean, I, have, I have lots of photos from then i mean there's there's a lot online now but there's so many more yeah. from Canal Street. That's like, yeah, this insane loft that my uncle lived in. That that wasn't like a cool, fancy loft. It was just like a yeah. dump, but it was incredible. Yeah. So around that time, or or at that time, you became interested in playing music and uh, and playing drums. And for me, uh, we both are drummers, rock drummers. I would say. I mean, yeah, you yeah. are probably more than that, but I I'm largely yeah. a rock drummer. I would say I'm a and rock drummer. Yeah. I did get in the jazz and specifically like. Uh, love supreme a little bit later in life and that mm -hmm. was because jazz was too heady and kind of cerebral for me uh at a young age right. but i wonder was it just like at that young of age for you was that kind of music what got you into wanting to play drums and music or was it later rock with its right. more visceral like feel it in the butt and the in the chest <laughs> rather than the, the yeah brain. yeah totally and the heart yeah um I think it was just a combination. I mean, I was I was so young. My mom, my uncle bought me a drum set when I was two and a half, and I I think I remember it, but I also you know how memories like that you kind of color in what you and you you convince yeah. yourself you remember it. Yeah. So I'm not positive, but I really think I do. And at that point, I was already I was playing on pots and pans and on some like you know African drum that a family friend had brought back from Africa, and like mm -hmm. so my uncle didn't give me a drum set to spark my interest in music. He gave me. A drum set because at two and a half I was already kind of playing drums so yeah. I, I don't remember how I got into music or what inspired me it was just always there so when I once I got drums I mean at the time and that's right around when that album Valley of Search that we just heard was recorded so like I was really heavily exposed to lots of that like sort of intense spiritual free jazz that's you know my godfather yeah. is Cooper Moore the pianist on that album like everyone who lived in that building that's what they did and so Jeez. I knew that but at the same time I mean my mother's record collection was like the Beatles and Patti LaBelle and Stevie Wonder. So there's plenty mm -hmm. of like, you know, whatever mainstream popish, whatever that was sure. at the time. So I just kind of loved it all. And then Kiss just came in and fucked up everything. When I was <laughs> five years old, I bought Destroyer and I was like, this is it. And then MTV really reinforced that yeah. once I was, I was like 10 or 11 and early MTV then was so like whatever missing persons and Van Halen and rock Right. And yeah. so that, so kind of from the point I got that Kiss record, it's, I mean, I've always had a huge love of jazz and lots of other things, but always wanted to play rock music. And 
And then uh, eventually you moved out west. You came out to Salt Lake City uh, and, yeah. you, and you started playing drums more. And I think you played in some bands. And uh, two similarities that you and I have is that we were both weirdos because we liked weird music. I <laughs> right. skateboarded. Uh, but you played sports and I did the same thing. And that kind of got me into trouble every once in a while. I got, you know, punched and not beat up, but, you know, <laughs> the, the jock side of my life. They didn't like my weirdoness. Oh, really? And No, not really. I remember being held up by my neck, you know, feet off Ooh. the ground. God. It was just weird. Okay. Uh, and uh, But it seems like you did a similar thing in Salt Lake, which, like my community in Northern California, primarily white community. Mm-hmm. Um, to add to that, you're a person of color from New York City coming right. to Salt Lake City. How did right, how did right. you maneuver that in your teens of all? Yeah, that was wild. That's, well, I was actually 10 when we moved. So we'd lived okay. in, my mother and I lived in Amherst, Massachusetts, and New York City and Cambridge, all of which were just like, you know, my father's black, my mother's white. And we just lived in these incredibly diverse places where it just wasn't, race wasn't even an issue. It wasn't even, I didn't have to identify, I didn't have to talk about it. There's so many yeah. mixed kids, so many kids of different races, so many kids with single parents, like really was a non-issue for my first 10 years. And then we moved to Salt Lake City for my mother's job. And that was just a totally different thing. <laughs> Obviously, very white, very family, you know, most kids with two parents, just like what what you imagine. Yeah. But I will say so friendly and so open and not not at all. I mean, certainly for the first time in my life, people just like asking if I was adopted and wanting to touch my Afro and asking if I was poor and like lots of that stuff. But it, it didn't seem malicious. And certainly it wasn't, you know, I wasn't scared. It wasn't terrified, but it was just new to suddenly stand out and be different and be weird. Um, but I think having those first 10 years really helped. I think the sort of uh-huh. base of not being different or being weird made yeah. it so I could kind of come in there. And I think I just sort of chose like, we're here. I'm going to make friends. We're going to get into music. I'm going to try to start a band with these people and it's going to be great. And that's kind of what happened. I guess that's the positivity you're talking about. But like, yeah. what, what was my other choice to like be mad at people? <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. But I ended I mean, I spend a lot of time defending Salt Lake and really loved it. I lived there through high school. And the funniest part was for me that when we moved, I was 10 and I was already so into music and was like, my biggest fear wasn't the race stuff or any of that. It was that. I get to see and be around so much music in New York and moving to Salt Lake City. Like, is that it? Is it over? Right. And amazingly, it was yeah. the opposite. It was like, oh, wow, everyone plays here. It's cheaper. Everything is all ages. It's easy to go to. I saw so many shows in Salt Lake. And it was especially once I was in high school. I was seeing, you know, whatever, Jane's Addiction and Fishbone and all those bands and yeah. like teeny clubs that because people would stop there between Denver and L.A. or whatever. And it was really kind of incredible. And it was probably better for me than New York would have been in some ways. That's true. Yeah. And I um, speaking of Fishbone, I was obsessed with Fishbone at the same time. Amazing. I, mean, I had an older friend that my parents trusted and he would take me into the city, into San Francisco. Oh, yeah. And uh, or Berkeley. And man, we got to see them so many times. I mean, just... one of the best live bands of, of all time, oh, especially back my... then. Yeah. Yeah. So your next stop was Seattle. Yeah, and for college. And yet another thing that you and I did was <laughs> operated in the same circles and or parallel playing drums and touring and bands in Seattle. Yeah. Throughout the 90s and uh, early aughts, I guess. Um, you stepped it up, though. You and Jason Right. Opened a record store that became a pillar of community in Seattle and 
the West Coast. That was a stop for people. Yeah, it was crazy. And we, we really didn't know what we were doing when we opened Sonic Boom, but it, it grew fast and became a real thing. Yeah. And I, I mean, all of that work you did in Seattle, it seems to be building blocks. You keep, I mean, your trajectory only goes one way. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, those all seem to be building blocks for what you do now, which you're president of 4ID and Beggars. Uh, yeah. And yeah. that's crazy. I mean, it is crazy. I, I, I I, I'm, a, I, I'm I'm abbreviating this so so people will read the book, and uh, it's so beautifully illustrated. Also, your journey. Oh, um, by the way, I don't know how many years ago, uh, probably six years ago. Speaking of Mister Heavenly, you emailed me back. <laughs> I was pitching Mister Heavenly, and you emailed me back. That's the best you could do, and that's, well, <laughs> you could have signed us, but. I appreciate that. I'm, I'm, I really, I'm glad do. I did that. That's nice. <laughs> um, so uh, after Seattle, you went to New York. You're working for Beggars and 4AD, and you jump into this research for your extended family and beyond. Uh, yeah, and that's still it's still happening. Too. I mean, I, I kind of thought once this book's been out for a few weeks, I thought you know that'll be like not the end, but like a sort of some point of like, okay, things can slow down and, and didn't really think about the fact that once the book got out there and some people started hearing about it or reading it, that that would just connect me to even more people. And it's really like so much more than I ever yeah. could have imagined. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you, you couldn't imagine what that yielded and it's all the characters and extended family that, that come up. It's just, it's, it's amazing. Uh, it's oh, really impressive. You. And one of the craziest relationships is with Karen. And your degree of separation written down on paper alone is like, what the fuck? <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> I don't know if you want to talk about your sure. relationship with Karen or I mean. Yeah, I could. I was when I was reading it, I was like, oh, my God. No, <laughs> no, no. It was like watching a movie. That's great. Uh, yeah, the, the quick version is when I did 23andMe, I think back in like 2018, I was just, you know, kind of not being able to get any more info from my father and wanted to learn more about his side of the family. So I just thought if I do 23andMe, who knows what that'll bring up. So I did. And it didn't tell me much. But then a cousin reached out and said, I have an heir's family tree you might want to see. And so that was like, you know, the, the gold mine, this incredible document yeah. that goes way back and talks about the first person they know of, this guy, Isaac Ayers, who was enslaved in 1824, has pictures of a lot of these people. I mean, it's really this just incredible document. And um, and so it also names the slave owner. And I started researching him. His name is also Ayers and found a pretty quick link to this woman who appears to be alive named Karen. And so I just emailed her and I was like, hey, I'm just sort of doing some family research. Like, you know, this wasn't you and I don't have any, no ill will and I'm not looking yeah. for anything, just kind of looking for information. And she emailed me right back and we sort of struck up this like really quick, great friendship. We still email all the time. We, she comments on my comments on my Instagram post. Like she's like, she's family. She feels like an aunt or something like that. And, uh, wow. you know, we're not positive of the connection, but yeah. fairly certain that there is one and that it's a really weird creepy one that's so much more common i think than <laughs> yeah. anyone a lot of people in america want to acknowledge but i love the fact that she just jumped in right yeah yeah have you had any let's leave the negative out have you had any funny feedback from your uh anyone close to you or or newly uh -huh. close to you funny feedback 
I can't think of any. I mean, the thing I keep waiting for is like some some friend from high school or college or something to just say like, this is totally wrong. This is not what happened. <laughs> that hasn't <laughs> happened yet. But I did do a lot of sort of due diligence of like, I didn't show very many people the whole book, but lots of people saw parts, meaning like, yeah. hey, you were at this. Does this look right to you? And that kind of thing. So yeah, did kind of a lot of a lot of that pre-damage control. But I can't think of anything that's that crazy that's come up yet it's only been a few weeks so you know it takes a while to read a book yeah yeah uh well man you've yet enriched yourself and the world again by your oh. own hand thank you it's, great. it's a killer book uh and i encourage everyone to read my life in the sunshine and i think you might be done touring but i hope you're not done touring and you come to seattle yeah there's more stuff i just did like kind of a quick two weeks but there's i'm planning things kind of throughout the year and into next year just it won't be i don't think it'll be a tour but you know sure one-offs if you will flyaways right <laughs> whatever the rock term is yeah it's one-offs that's what i'm doing right now <laughs> mm -hmm. um all right man well i hope to see you somewhere all right great to see you thanks thanks for your time all right and now nabil's tour story This is the first real band, in air quotes, that I was in in 1995. So I was 23 years old, living in Seattle, and joined this band called The Lemons, who were like this, I guess, punk rock band. Kind of like, looked like they were in Happy Days or Grease, like kind of tough guys with leather jackets, and I didn't fit in at all, but but sort of fell into the band and, and loved playing with them and got along great with them. And so this was uh, our second real tour in the fall of 1995 was touring with the Dancehall Crashers and All, who used to be Descendants. Those two bands. And the sh I think the tour started in like Salt Lake. And so we were headed to meet them there from Seattle, played our own show in LA, and then drove overnight from LA to Salt Lake. Um, and at the time, three of the guys in the band loved to smoke pot, a lot of pot. And I didn't smoke pot at the time, nor did one other person who was with us. And their plan was like to be really careful this is a six-week tour, so we're going to bring a lot of pot because we need our great Seattle bud. That was their thing. But we'll be careful with it. We had a van and a trailer with all the gear, so they bagged it all in like tons of individual baggies. It was three and a half ounces. It was a lot of weed. And put all those in like a Tupperware container inside a turkey bag, inside another Tupperware container, inside a merch box. And, so, and then they would just keep one little bag in the van. So if we got pulled over, that wasn't that big of a deal. So it was, you know, an okay plan. Sure enough, uh, we played the LA show. It's the second night of a six-week tour, and we're in the middle of the desert, having driven overnight. It's probably five in the morning, and we run into a roadblock in the desert in the middle of Utah, and they're stopping every single car. It's tons of cops. It's dogs. It's the whole, it's this crazy roadblock, and we all kind of wake up, and we're all like, oh, shit. <laughs> what is this? And so, and I had grown up in Salt Lake. I, I mean, we weren't in Salt Lake. This is a few hours south, but, you know, I kind of knew where we were. I was like, this is not good. And so so the person who was driving didn't have a license, which is a, a real problem. So they were like, okay, guys, pull over. Made us drive the van onto a median. Now they're all very, you know, they're looking in. They're very, very curious. Five dudes who look like we're in a band, who look all kind of gross and tired and the, all that stuff. So I can just feel it. I'm like, we're going to jail. We're totally fucked. Um, and they just really beat down the driver. And they're like, you know, just let us do a quick search of the van. You guys have any guns or weapons or drugs or anything? And we're like, no, officer, of course not. No, we're just driving to go to play a concert. Nothing here. 
And I think there's just so much duress that they finally just kind of said, look, we're searching the van, get out. And so we got out and we're all trying to play it cool. They search the van, they find one very small bag of weed and we're all trying to act like, oh man, they found it. We're bummed, you know, knowing that there's this mother load sitting in the trailer. Then they search the trailer and they don't find it. And they start packing up the trailer for us. And we're sitting there watching them. And we we all know the box. We're looking at it we're like, oh, my God, the dogs didn't sniff it. Nothing. And we're just like, this is amazing. And then suddenly one of the officers just gets curious and kind of opens it up. And then they find everything. And another officer walks over to us. And I remember he pointed at us and he said, no more talking. And we we're like, oh, shit. Now we're really fucked. So this turned into proper like I was handcuffed on my knees in the desert. You know, all of us on the median cars driving by, laughing at us, yelling shit at us, like, oh, they caught you, like all that kind of stuff. And uh, and I mean, they stuffed us in cars, took us to jail in Fillmore, Utah. We were inside of a cell, handcuffed, got got our fingerprints, got our mug shots, got the whole thing completely arrested in the middle of nowhere. Possession with intent to distribute felony charge in utah and i remember thinking i'm 23 like we're fucked this is my life is totally different i went to college and now it's like it's the 90s it's real like you know it's not a good time for that stuff so so i get a hold of some friends in salt lake where i'd grown up and this is like where the, the good small town network comes in my friend from high school's dad is best friends with the top criminal attorney in the state this guy wally bugden we have to pay him ten thousand dollars but he takes the case and uh, they let us out. They let us go on our own recognizance or whatever. We finish the tour and we have to come back, fly to Salt Lake, meet Wally, the lawyer, to take us to this court date. He's on his cell phone, which is very novel and new at the time in 1995. He's on the cell phone making a deal while we're driving through the desert on the way. He's talking to the DA and we get there and this guy just like he completely just wiped it clean. He walked in and did this like very verbose like act, like, you know, really like pouring it on and uh. And the two of us whose pot it wasn't got nothing. I have my record completely expunged. I have a stack of paper from the state that says you were never arrested. You can say so in a job interview. And the other guys got like a $300 fine and we walked and it was insane. Oh, makes you wonder. You, you got you got to know a guy. But I mean, if yeah. we didn't know a guy, I might still be in jail. God. Hey, you would have probably written about 90 more books. <laughs> I'm glad you're not in jail. Thanks to Nabil for the story and the book, and thank you for listening. If you like tour stories, please subscribe. For more stories, interviews, and general wah-wah-wah-wah, go to ruinousmedia.com slash tourstories.